this morning we are actually wrapping up a, a, a three-week series that uh, we've been doing uh, here at the beginning of the year called Refocus, uh, refocusing ourselves personally and corporately on the mission that God uh, has given us as a church. And we're going to be in the book of Philippians uh, this morning, so if you, if you have a Bible, I'd love for you to turn uh, to the book of Philippians in the New Testament. Um, <clears throat> we're going to be looking at uh, the uh, this letter and Paul's um, encouragement and challenge really to this young church, in fact, the church plant like uh, like ourselves. And um, <clears throat> what we've been doing over these last three weeks is actually looking at uh, really three different uh, churches or, or three different uh, images of God's people, times at which God has been working in the life of his people or his church and have been asking how, how we can learn from what God has done in these places and amongst these people and apply that to our lives. And so we looked at the church at Antioch in Acts chapter 11 and Acts 13. Uh, the church at Antioch, like the church at Philippi, uh, was a church plant that, that popped up through the work of evangelism of some unnamed believers uh, and began to, to grow. We, we saw in, in the church at Antioch a diverse church committed to evangelism It was growing in God's word. They were teaching and studying God's word and they were multiplying by sending their people out uh, to take the gospel to places that it hadn't been. Uh, that's, that's the kind of church that we want to be here in Ann Arbor, a church that uh, reflects the diversity of our community, which means we move towards people who aren't like us, a church that's committed to growing in God's word through the teaching of God's word, through, through equipped classes that we offer here at the church starting this semester, through uh, discipleship and disciple personal discipleship relationships, and then multiplying multiplying in, in all areas of our church, um, and especially in being willing to send our own people to be on mission. Um, I'll say it, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. We want to be a church every three to four years, instead of saying goodbye to people as they transition their jobs to this place or that place, we want to be a church that sends people every three to four years into the places that God is calling them, into the vocations that God is calling them, to be on mission, to, to be his ambassador wherever they go, as well as be committed to being a church that's willing to send out our own people and partner together with other church plants and church revitalizations that, that are taking place all throughout North America and around the world. We will be known, the health and the strength of our church will not be known by the, the seating capacity we have. Uh, here's, here's the beautiful thing about God's economy. Uh, in, in God's economy, in his kingdom, uh, the significance of the work that God is doing isn't measured by its size, but it's measured by the willingness of people to go wherever God calls, whenever he calls. Uh, what a privilege that we get to be a part of that. And we want what God did at Antioch for God to do in Ann Arbor. And then we looked uh, last week at Jeremiah 29, and, and we saw exiled Israel in Babylon. Uh, and, and there we saw how God intends for his people to be distinct, and yet, he also desires for them to intentionally seek the good of the place he has sent them. There's this being set apart because we belong to God. Our, our hope isn't in this world. So we can't, we can't look like and live like our, the world around us lives. Not because we're better than anyone, but because we have a different hope. We live in this city seeking a city that's to come. And that changes everything. That changes our desires and our affections and our pursuits. And it puts it all on the Lord. And so we're called to be distinct in this way. And yet God calls us to seek the good 
of the city, a city that may be at odds with everything we believe, that may actually do harm at times uh, to, to those who put their faith in Christ. God calls Israel to seek the good of Babylon, just like he called Israel to seek the good of Jerusalem, the very place where the temple of God and the, the presence of God met his people. God's presence isn't bound by a location, but it goes wherever God sends his people. And he calls us while we're there to be intentionally set apart and distinct and yet faithful to seek the good of the places that we find ourselves. And that's what we want to do here in Ann Arbor. We want to be a church that unashamedly and faithfully lives out our calling to be identified with Jesus Christ. And without missing a beat, seek the good of our city personally in our lives, seek to do good to the people around us, seek to, to demonstrate the love and the compassion, the mercy of Christ in all of our conversations and interactions. And as a church, look at real needs that we see in our community and find ways to meet them. Um, and one of, the, one of the ways, especially we talked about that last week, was, was how we can do that through Serve Ann Arbor. Uh, Serve Ann Arbor is really an overall banner that we wave as a church that says our desire as a church is to serve our city. Um, and, and this is a lifestyle uh, that works itself out in some commitments where we serve together within our small groups twice a year. We serve together as a church twice a year, usually bound by the different semesters. And then in the summer, it kind of has a, a capstone experience where our church as well as some partner churches come together to serve for a week, serve Ann Arbor Week, where we, we intentionally seek to serve city uh, entities, nonprofits, businesses, individuals in our community without strings attached, seeking to, to tangibly show the love of Christ. And if we do that only in those planned times and that's not who we are as a people, uh, that'll be great. We'll have some impact. But what would happen if those planned times uh, of serving our city was just, just an overflow of the kind of people we already are as a church? That's what it means to be distinct and yet seeking the good of our city. And so um, <clears throat> our mission, uh, you can, you can kind of hear it flow from Jeremiah 29 and, and Acts 11 and 13. Our mission as a church is to multiply disciples who delight in, declare, and display the gospel in all of life and for the good of Ann Arbor. We take Jesus' call to make disciples as the call that he has given us as a church. We're not very original here at PCC. Jesus said, make disciples. We say, let's do the same. Um, let's see people who come to know and follow Jesus. And let's be people who not only know and follow Jesus, but help others do the same. That's what it means to make disciples. There's, there's a lot of different resources and tools you can use, but at its heart, discipleship is knowing and following Jesus and helping others do the same. So if you stay around long enough at PCC, you will be discipled. You will be equipped to make disciples. You will be called to be a part of the work that God is doing here at TCC and the work that God has given us as a church to do, which is to make disciples. And, and as a disciple, as a follower of Jesus, we believe there's a rhythm to our lives. And there, there's all kinds of ways that we could summarize this. And the way we summarize it isn't perhaps the, the only way to do it. But at the core... Now, we see a few different rhythms that are essential to the Christian life, and these rhythms are what we're going to press in to today from Philippians chapter 1. And you, you hear those rhythms in our mission statement, to, to multiply disciples who delight in, declare, and display the gospel. 
These rhythms are, uh, <clears throat> are what it means to live out the Christian life. And we think the order is important. That, that delighting in God is actually what, what sets up and, uh, and sets the, the direction and the trajectory, tra those two words together, direction and trajectory of our lives uh, on a daily basis and over the course of it. And we believe the Christian life begins with finding Jesus to be your ultimate treasure. What does it mean to be a Christian? Yes, it is uh, focused on, a, on, on putting your trust in a person and understanding what he has accomplished for you. Jesus is the person, his perfect work for you, his death on the cross in your place and his resurrection from the dead is, is the, the center of our faith. But what, what it means to put your faith in him isn't just cognitive assent, but it's to look at Jesus and say, he's the one. My greatest treasure is in him and, 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 and what God offers me. It starts with saying, I am a great sinner, but there is a great savior. And I'm putting my trust in him. The Christian life begins with treasuring Jesus. And then it works itself out in all of our life through word and deed. We seek to live for God and his glory. And word and deed means to, to declare, to make it known with our lips, and to display, to show it with our lives. This is the rhythms. These are the rhythms of the Christian life. And so when we, when we give ourselves to this pursuit of Jesus as our greatest treasure, we have no problem pouring out our lives for the sake of others, that they might know and share in this hope and treasure that we found in Jesus. And so <clears throat> uh, our mission to, to multiply disciples who delight in, declare, and display the gospel in all of life and for the good of Ann Arbor brings us to Philippians chapter 1. Uh, let me <clears throat> just read Philippians 1 for us, uh, starting in, in verse 12 is where we're going to begin. In Philippians 1, really the book as a whole, Paul is giving an update um, on, on his circumstances where he's found himself, and he's, he's also... Uh, going to challenge and encourage the church in a number of different ways to, to be faithful uh, to the Lord. And, and so <clears throat> here in Philippians 1 verse 12, he says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And the, what has happened to me is that he's been imprisoned. And so much so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, speaking of the other believers that have heard about his imprisonment, have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment and are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So Paul is saying, and he's sharing this update on his imprisonment and, and what's taken place through his imprisonment. Writing to a church that he loves dearly. The church at Philippi was a church that Paul helped plant. Um, and you want to see a, a great launch team. Here's the launch team for the Church of Philippi. A wealthy lady named Lydia, um, <clears throat> a former prison guard or current prison guard, Roman prison guard and his family, um, and a formerly demon-possessed slave girl um, all come together uh, for a launch team to plant the church at Philippi. All right? And so uh, God is, a, is a, an awesome God and works in a great way to bring about this church. Um, and, and Paul, uh, with a co-worker named Silas, actually get imprisoned. Um, and so part of what happens, they come into town uh, and they, they're able to meet Lydia and God opens up Lydia's heart to believe the gospel. And they're being pestered by this uh, slave girl who's, who's basically 
every day following them around and being like, these men are from the Lord. These men are doing the work of the Lord and, and causing a big ruckus. And, um, and she ends up being healed by Paul and Silas. And the people she worked for get so mad. And, and the work of the gospel in Philippi is, is happening to such a degree that these people are afraid that maybe they're going to lose some business. Um, and, and people start to get upset. And Paul and Silas get thrown in prison. Uh, what a way to plant a church. And, and they are in prison. Uh, God releases them. And they call out to the prison guard who's about to kill himself. Because if you lose all your prisoners, uh, that's a bad way uh, to, uh, uh, to do your job. And, um, and basically, through this, literally him physically being saved, Paul and Silas share the gospel with his whole family. And his family trusts in Christ. Um, and then they get driven out of town just maybe a few days later. And so... New church, um, no leaders, good luck, right? Uh, well, God worked it in such a way that Paul and some of his other co-workers were able to, to come and help the church get established. And, and we know that by the time Paul writes them just a few years later that there are already elders or pastors and deacons established in the church. It says so in Philippians 1 verse 1. So this church has become established and is growing. This church has supported Paul financially sure what that was um, and um, and and there's this deep relationship if you look at chapter 4 verse 1 Paul says that um, of the of the believers there whom I love and long for you are my joy and my crown stand firm in the Lord my beloved this is this is Paul's heart for the church of Philippi and and so there's this deep relationship and, and now he's sharing the news of his imprisonment as well as how God has been at work through this. And so as, as we jump into to kind of look at what Paul says here, uh, we're going to basically look at the three rhythms that I mentioned earlier um, in a little bit of a different order. We're going to see first Paul talks about displaying, or excuse me, declaring the gospel, that Christ is proclaimed. Then he's going to talk about delighting um, in, in Christ that he, he says in Philippians 1.21, a verse, if you, if you don't have it memorized, should should be at the top of your list. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain, is Paul's summary of his affection for Jesus. And, and then there's this challenge to, to display the gospel, to live worthy of the gospel, he says in, in verse 27. And, and in all of this, as we look at these rhythms, I, I want to speak to where God is leading us as a church, but, but especially today what I want to do is ask you to consider yourself personally. Consider where you are at today and at the beginning of this year. Are you embracing these rhythms in your life? What, what do these rhythms look like in your life? I, I don't want us to miss the opportunity to refocus ourselves on God personally and to, to reevaluate the rhythms of our life and whether or not they are healthy and regular in the way that we see Paul talk about them here in Philippians 1. So uh, over this whole message is, is the call and the challenge to each of us to ask ourselves, what do the rhythms of my life look like? And, and do they reflect the rhythms that we see here in Philippians chapter 1? And so first up is, uh, is in verses 12 through 17, we see the, the, the rhythm of declaring the gospel. Paul says it this way, that Christ is proclaimed, uh, and that is what he rejoices in. And if you were to look at what Paul is saying here, basically Paul, Paul says that he has an undesirable circumstance 
He's in prison. He's in a very um, unlikely place for God to move the imperial guard. And through it all, God does something unexpected. Uh, Here he is in prison, not desirable, uh, around the imperial guard. That's pretty much the company he keeps. And then not only that, God does something even more unexpected. So in this place of imprisonment, God is using Paul to make the gospel known to these guards. Most likely, Paul is... Uh, is in, um, in Caesarea in prison and there are these Roman guards that are around him watching over him um, and Paul throughout the day you can just imagine uh, you know hey how's it going um, do you know about Jesus you know I, I don't know what the conversation was like you know Paul was a uh, you know a talented guy he uh, he had a job he made tents so maybe they talked about that he was he was both, uh, uh, you know, the Jew of Jews, and yet he also had Roman citizenship, citizenship as a uh, Jew of Tarsus, a, a citizen of Tarsus. And, and so maybe, maybe they talked about all kinds of things, but what's abundantly clear is that they came to know that he was in prison for Christ, on behalf of Christ. And the gospel was being made known there in his undesirable circumstance. And not only that, but God used Paul's imprisonment to actually embolden believers. And that's, it's actually an unlikely if you think about it. If, if you think about what, what would happen if, if your leader who helped start your church, who was significant in your life, the, the person who maybe led you to the Lord, if within weeks or months of that experience they get thrown into prison, the thought might cross your mind like, so if he got thrown into jail and I believe what he believes, maybe, maybe I should kind of like quiet down. Maybe I should back off this a little bit. Or, like, look at the fruit of this guy's life. He's been thrown into prison. Do I really want to follow somebody who gets thrown into prison? A worthy question to ask that you should all think about sometime in your life, right? Um, That's the very real question they were asking themselves. And, And instead what happens is that Paul's imprisonment for Christ is used to encourage other believers to be confident and to be bold. And, and I think the reason that that's the case is that they see the quality of Paul's life and they've experienced the power of the gospel personally and they know that Christ is worthy to suffer for. They know that imprisonment, that undesirable circumstances are no obstacle to the advance of the gospel. Did you hear what Paul said? He said, I want you to know what's happened to me, i.e. my imprisonment, hasn't stopped the advance of the gospel. In fact, the undesirable circumstance was the very means that God intended to use to advance the gospel. I love in in 2 Timothy, Paul says, I am bound, once more he's in prison, seemed to be a kind of a pattern in Paul's life. He's in prison, he says, though I am bound, the gospel is unbound, the gospel is unchanged. And see, I think we need to hear this too. Our, our circumstances most likely aren't imprisonment. Um, if you serve with our kids, I know that you haven't been in prison because we do the background checks. So everyone else, you know, I don't know uh, if you've recently been in or out of prison. Um, and uh, I used to actually last, uh, before, is it now two years ago, I was a part of a prison program where I helped teach um, a, a class on the Bible at a prison in North Carolina. And uh, every, uh, I think it was Wednesday, um, 
I had to wear my clear backpack and you know uh, to go to go to prison and it was always interesting explaining to my daughter daddy's going to prison this morning you know I'll see you uh, see you in the evening and what did you do this morning I was in prison but um, so anyways <clears throat> no matter our circumstance and and you may feel this way like job isn't what you want school isn't what you want you're not sure the direction that life is going to go uh, things in, in your family or, or, or peer group or whatever circumstance you have, it's easy for us to look at our circumstance and go, this is an obstacle to God working in my life. And, and what Paul is saying here is that his undesirable circumstance was no obstacle to God's work in and through him. But it was actually the place in which and the, the thing that God intended to use for his work, for his purpose to advance the gospel. There is nothing stopping you and I from being used by God to advance the gospel regardless of where he's placed us. And we can be encouraged and should be encouraged by that truth today. And one of the things for us as a church uh, that, that we want to, to not just call us to that type uh, of, of trust in God and boldness to be used wherever he's placed us, but we want to equip uh, the church to, to, to do that. And so coming up in, in February, February 21st and the 22nd, a Friday night, Saturday morning, um, <clears throat> sleep in your own bed uh, and, and come back in the morning uh, for, um, for the second half, we're, we're going to have our first equip class. And the topic is going to be on evangelism, relational evangelism and everyday life, and where we desire to, to help us to address some of the issues that keep us from sharing the gospel, as well as some of the the practical dynamics of what that looks like, but uh, especially drilling in and, and looking at uh, how to have conversations with people about Jesus. How, how do we do that? What's that look like? And what, what happens when you share and they're not interested? Uh, how do you not treat people like projects, but treat them like real people, the way that you would want to be treated and, and love them and serve them and make Christ known in your conversation and your relationship? We want to we drill into that and equip the church to be ready to share the gospel in everyday life with the people that God has put around you. I'm excited about uh, not just that equipped class, but our equipped classes throughout the semester, how they will prepare us uh, to, to faithfully uh, declare the gospel in all of life. <clears throat> in verses 15 and 17, we, don't, we won't drill too much into this, but basically Paul uh, addresses that there are some people who are using his imprisonment as an opportunity uh, to try to make things worse for him. He says, some preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, those who do it from goodwill, knowing that I put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. I know that it's hard for any of you to believe that a Christian could do anything out of self-interest or rivalry, right? Like no church has ever tried to do something in rivalry to another church down the road or anything like that. You know, they never try to beat the other church to the favorite lunch place or, you know, put up a better sign or do a better thing, right? That never happens, but it did happen here, um, somewhat being facetious. But um, I don't fully understand how they were sharing the gospel in such a way to to stick it to Paul, basically, to make his imprisonment worse. But clearly it was happening. But here's one thing we know. They were sharing the gospel from, from wrong motives, Paul makes clear, but they were sharing the, act, the true gospel. Uh, when, when people don't share the true gospel, um, Paul isn't happy. Uh, if you read Galatians, uh, the book of Galatians, another letter uh, here in the New Testament, there are some people at the church of Galatia and they are the churches in that region who are sharing a gospel that's not true. Uh, and Paul isn't as pleasant 
and isn't rejoicing in what they're sharing. Uh, so anytime the gospel is, is distorted or changed, Paul, you're going to see Paul say, stop. Uh, here Paul is saying there's some people who have some mixed motives for why they're sharing and what they're sharing. Um, and everyone will give an account to God. Uh, our motives matter. However, Paul seems to be saying the one thing, that, the kind of the bottom line for Paul here, is that when the gospel is shared, we should rejoice. When the true gospel is shared, we should rejoice. And I think sometimes because maybe we're in our heads all about how to share, if we should share, or afraid to share, or whatever it is, that, that we can miss this aspect of joy and the gospel being made known. Um, and Paul is saying that whenever the gospel is made known, I rejoice. Uh, your motives matter, and all of us will give an account for why we do what we do. Uh, but we should all rejoice in the gospel being shared. I, I think of it this way. Uh, here recently we realized how much my son loves ice cream. And so last night uh, I made a, a fatal parenting mistake. I got ice cream before the kids went to bed. Um, and <clears throat> you always do that after bed uh, so you can enjoy it freely. Uh, and, uh, and so um, my son was like, like a little bird, you know. Uh, and so I decided to oblige and sit on the floor in the kitchen and share some of my ice cream with him. And Moose Tracks ice creams, which if you, if you ever wonder if I'm a loving dad, now you know, right? I shared my <laughs> Moose Tracks ice cream. Uh, and I mean, he's like, you know, he walks with his hands out like this. He's like, ah, please, please dad. And so I'm like trying to, I mean, he's climbing on top of me. Um, I'm like worried for his well-being because he's gonna climb on me, fall, hit his head. Um, and when the ice cream's all gone, I tried to get a video of this, but it didn't work. My, he's done this one other time. When the ice cream is all gone, John will let out an, a, a cry of, of frustration and deep angst, and he'll lay down on the ground, and he'll put his head on the ground, and he'll just cry. Like, sometimes you know how much joy a person gets from something when you see the crash when they don't get it, right? Um, I think we need to rejoice in the gospel being made known to the same degree that my son rejoices when he sees ice cream, right? Like, that's the kind of joy that we should, we should have as we think about Jesus being made known. Uh, because it's the best news in all the world. Whether you share it or somebody else shares it, praise God when the gospel is made known. The first rhythm is to declare that Christ would be proclaimed. But Paul goes on in verses 18 through 26 to say, to show us not only what declaring the gospel looks like, but what it looks like to delight in the gospel and specifically the, the person whom the gospel is all about. Paul says, yes, and I will rejoice, for I know through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus, this is verse 19, that this imprisonment will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my, body, in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. So Paul goes from giving an update on his imprisonment now to, to kind of sharing his hope of how God's going to deliver him. He says that uh, it's his confident expectation that God will deliver him because, two things, the prayers of God's people, your prayers, he says to the church of Philippi, and the help of the Holy Spirit. So Paul's confidence when he's in this circumstance, this dilemma, um, is that God's people are praying and the Holy Spirit is able to intervene. Uh, 
Uh, that's a great uh, combination. I, I've said in the church planning process, as I talk to, to other churches who have supported us, I'm confident that God's work here in Ann Arbor through Treasuring Christ will, will grow and flourish because uh, of the prayers of God's people and the help of the Holy Spirit uh, to work in and through us. Um, and, and then Paul really gets into uh, showing us, I think, what this rhythm of delighting looks like, what it, what it means to delight in Christ. When, when he says in verse 20, even if I'm not delivered, it's my eager expectation to be delivered. But even if I'm not, I'm confident that Christ will be honored, whether through my life, me being delivered, or even through my death. See, there's, there's a calculation that Paul has made when he thinks about life. And that calculation is being made based upon who he sees Jesus to be. He says it in verse 21 and, and following, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Somewhat maybe of a clumsy statement as we understand English today. But, but listen to what he says. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for, for me. If I'm delivered from this imprisonment, I trust that God will continue to use me. But I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is better. Paul knows he doesn't have a, a choice. Uh, he, he doesn't get to choose if he's delivered or not delivered. His desire is to actually be with Christ. He longs to be with Jesus, which is always convicting to me because I love my life most of the time. And I love the people in my life. And it's hard for me to say I, I want to be gone from this and to be present with the Lord. Whenever he wants, I want that, right? But right now, God, I want this. But Paul says, my desire is to be with Christ. But if he so chooses, I will stay. And being convinced of this, he says in verse 25, I will remain and continue with you for your progress and your joy in the faith so that you may have ample cause to glory in Christ because of my coming to you again. So Paul's calculation is that Jesus is better than life. The, the one thing that we all fear, if we're honest, is death. When death will come. Somebody gets sick, we fear death. Somebody gets in an accident, immediately we think, well, are they, are they safe? We fear death. We, we, we look at the people in our lives that we love, and sometimes in a, in a moment we go, I don't want to miss this. I don't want to lose this. I don't want anything to happen to these precious people I love. Or, God, I don't want to miss out on life. And what Paul is saying is because Jesus, as he'll say elsewhere, has died on the cross for our sin and he has risen from the dead, he's defeated death, those who have put their faith and trust in him have no reason to fear the greatest fear that we all carry around in our life. Death is no enemy to the Christian. Death is, is no ultimate enemy to the follower of Christ. I'm not saying that you shouldn't have some fear and you know, that you shouldn't care about your loved ones and, and just write it all off because you shouldn't fear death. We all have natural fears. But deep down, <clears throat> we don't have to be anxious about when this life ends because we know we have a Savior who died and who rose again and who has promised that everyone who trusts in him will do the same. So Paul says, for me to live as Christ, if I go on living, I have the deep abiding joy of knowing Jesus in this life. And if it's all gone in an instant, then there's Christ, fully face-to-face. -face. For me to live is Christ, and to die is not a loss. 
to die is gain. To, to get full sight of Jesus. To get the full experience, the, the weight of glory that will be ours, we will, we will experience it in its fullness. The rest that God promises and we experience in part when we put our trust in Him is, is ours to be enjoyed. The, the feast of being with God is forever ours to enjoy. Because He ever lives and because He intercedes on our behalf, because he has promised to come again to live as Christ and to die as gain. That's, that's what it means to make the calculation in your life that you so esteem Jesus and that you so found your security and worth in him that nothing in this life compares. It changes the way you look at life. It can allow you to enjoy this life in the way that God intends without putting and attaching your hope and security and identity and the things that this life offers. <clears throat> and, and yet we <clears throat> also have the hope that even when it's all gone, even what we see now is gone, what we have waiting for us is better. Do you esteem Jesus that way? That's the question I asked when I read this. Do I esteem Jesus in the way that Paul talks about here? Do I delight in him so much so that I can say in me to, to live is Christ and to die is gain? That's what I want for us more than anything this year as a church, that we would, we would be a people that have, have found and, and can say to live is Christ and to die is gain. What, what would it look like for us to delight ourselves in Christ this way? I, I thought about what would be some of the, the things that God might use to, to help us in, in 2020. We, we all have goals that we can, we can set, get out of debt, get in shape, learn a new skill. All those are good, helpful. But what about the goal of delighting in or treasuring Christ more? I, I thought of a few different ways that we can do this. Number one is community. Together, we can help one another delight in Christ. This happens in our normal conversations with one another. As we, as we talk to one another, as we listen about the burdens that we're experiencing, that we're facing. We, we speak truth to, to turn our eyes to Christ. And one of the best things you can do to someone who's struggling is not give them your advice. That may come at some point in the conversation, but love them and graciously point them to Christ. That's, that's what every opportunity that small group provides is an opportunity to do that with one another, uh, to point one another to Christ. And so community is a way that we can do this. Scripture we need to hear and obey God's voice to, to find the, the delight and the treasure that is Christ. We do this through our personal reading as well as discussing God's word with others. We have a Bible reading plan that we're doing this year. If you haven't jumped into that, you can. Find something. Find some way to get more of God's word in your life. As you get God's word in your life, your, your eyes are open more and more to see the treasure that is the Lord. And then worship. I think of this often in, in my own heart, and I, I love in our home. Uh, it's not an unusual occurrence to hear worship being played on, on Alexa uh, on the house. Uh, it's our worship leader at the house. Um, Brandon, we appreciate you, and Alexa is our worship leader at home. Um, and and, and we, we take in worship that points us back and reminds us in the everyday mundane of who the Lord is. That's why we gather to worship even when there's snow on the ground without stuff. Because we say, God, we need you. 
We need to hear from you. Uh, I talked about evangelism earlier, but, but here I, I'm not just trying to press home some point out of guilt, but think about this. When you tell someone, uh, when you tell someone else that you found your greatest treasure, your greatest worth, the thing that you love, the person you love and desire above everything else is Jesus because he was willing to lay down his life for us that we might find true life in him. When you share that with someone else, no doubt it comes with the, all the uncertainty and insecurity of what happens after you share that. But that's where true joy is found, when you are willing to give something away. When you give it away to others, you find the great joy that's found in what you possess. And we possess the good news of Jesus. Everything flows from delighting in Christ. Delight fuels devotion. So whatever you do, make it your goal to find more delight in Jesus. Because it will fuel everything else. Declare the gospel. Delight in the gospel. That's the center of it all. And then Paul concludes with display the gospel. Which he sums up in verses 27 through 30. When he says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents this is a clear sign to them of their destruction but of your salvation and that is from God for it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake engaged in the same conflict that you saw that I had and now hear that I still have. So Paul is saying when he, when he calls us to display the gospel, he says it in this way, live worthy of the gospel. Here's, here's what I think this means. Living worthy of the gospel or displaying the gospel isn't so much about an act here or there in your life. Right? It's easy for us. Sometimes I think, well, I display the gospel when I do this at work or when I do this with a friend or I show the love of Christ in this way. All of that is true, but what Paul is saying is that displaying the gospel isn't so much about an act here or there in your life, but it's the manner of your life. It's, it's the way you live. You live with the desire to show the worth of Jesus to others. You live so that, that people might look at your life and say, I don't know if I believe what they believe, but I wish I did, or I'm tempted to believe it because of the way that they live. That's the kind of living worthy of the gospel that we live to show or display the worth and the validity of the gospel. That people would look at the church and, and rather than say, I want nothing to do with Jesus, they would say, man, those people make Jesus look attractive. Those people make, make Jesus seem more real to me because of the way they love one another, the way that they, they live before others. And Paul specifically says there are two things that show this type of living worthy of the gospel. The first thing is <clears throat> that we display the gospel through our life together, through our unity. He says that he desires that we stand firm in one spirit. To stand firm in one spirit speaks to, to unity, faithfulness in Christ through unity in the body of Christ. But then mission. We display the gospel as we strive together to courageously make the gospel known. He says not only that you would stand firm in one spirit with one mind, that you would strive side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by your opponents. Do you, do you notice the emphasis on together, one spirit, side by side, one mind? This is the calling of the church. Listen, I want to apply this personally um, because uh, ultimately 
together as a church, we can't be something that personally we're not willing to be in our lives. But, but note the emphasis. This is who the church is. He's calling the church at Philippi side by side, one, one mind, one spirit together to live with unity and on mission. This is our identity. There's something about the way that we relate to one another that, that makes Jesus more real to people, that makes the gospel compelling to people. We shouldn't be surprised. Jesus said this to his disciples in John 13, verses 34 through 35. He says, a new commandment I give to you, love one another. By this, all people will know that you belong to me, that you're my disciples. It's through our life together that we make Christ known in the world. One, one believer in their workplace or in their community can make an incredible impact. God can use you to do incredible things and, and work in your life and in one moment more than you think he could do in a lifetime. And yet think about what he can do when, when believers gather together, stand side by side, committed to him, living worthy of the gospel. The difference that God can, can do and use us to make him known. I want to close with one practical application and one final encouragement that Paul is giving here. The practical application that, that I pressed into a little bit earlier, but that I think is worthy in light of this emphasis on the corporate uh, aspect of our unity and mission is, is this, to get plugged into a small group. Our small groups began last week. Um, and at Treasuring Christ, small groups are where we display the gospel together. In fact, it's where we delight and declare and display together. It's where we need Jesus together. It's where we delight in him together. It's where you hear somebody else share what God's teaching them and, and you see what somebody else is walking through and how they're living faithfully or, or, or maybe struggling to live faithfully and you can pray for and encourage them. It's where we meet one another's needs. It's, it's where the gospel is made visible in, in the most, uh, I think, compelling way for us in a way that a sermon won't do where real relationships, real people standing together, side by side, standing firm in one spirit. So within our groups and even outside of our groups, we want to make it our goal to display the gospel and encourage one another uh, to live worthy of the gospel. And one of the things that we need where we're facing, even now at this early stage of our church, is we need to get ready to start more groups. We need to equip more people to be leaders and to be hosts of groups. And so coming up uh, in, in, in February as well, we're going to be doing a, a small group leader training where if you are interested in <clears throat> leading a group or uh, hosting a group, we, we, are re we recognize there's needs for all kinds of groups. We love that our groups right now are mostly multi-gen. We have some college groups that meet on campus. We, we want to uh, multiply the types of groups that we have that we can meet more people where they're at with real community really demonstrate what this unity and mission looks like together. So would you consider that? Would you consider getting involved in that way? Perhaps leading or co-leading a group or, or being willing to host a small group? All of these things are, are vital for us if we're, if we're going to live out a life worthy of the gospel together. And then the final encouragement comes in verses 28 through 30. Paul, Paul already said at the end of verse 27, or at the beginning of verse 28, that we shouldn't be frightened at anything by our opponents. To be frightened, that, that word is actually kind of the idea of a horse getting spooked uh, by something. Um, maybe, maybe it was nothing to be spooked by at all, but uh, they, they lose it and, uh, and run away. 
He says we shouldn't be frightened in any way by those who would oppose what we believe or how we live. And there's a statement that's kind of confusing where he says it's a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. I think what Paul is actually saying here is similar to what he says in, in 1 Corinthians when he says that your life to some people will be an aroma of death if you follow Jesus. Some people will look at you and say, I don't want anything to do with what you believe. That's possible. Some people looked at Jesus and said, I want nothing to do with you. But to some, your life will be the aroma of Christ. Some will look at you and see death. Some will look at you and see life. And, and the estimation of some people to live worthy of the gospel is a waste. But to live worthy of the gospel for the follower of Christ and in God's eyes is the ultimate calling, the ultimate blessing. It, it is evidence of our salvation where we're willing to live courageously for the sake of Christ. But here's the, here's the encouragement that Paul gives. It's going to take courage if we're going to live worthy of the gospel. We're going to have to embrace opposition if we're going to be serious about mission. I was reading an article from 1993 by a pastor, um, and he, he was talking about this, this verse. And he said, um, we, we are facing a time where we're going to have opposition to the Christian faith and to the church. It's going to be costly to speak about social issues from a biblical perspective. I was, I was just laughing. I was like, was this written 2019 or 1993, right? So that, that was, you know, I don't know, I can't do math, but 27 <laughs> years ago? Um, <clears throat> how much more today is it true? And how encouraging is it that it's been true since when Jesus walked the earth, right? We, we think, man, we're facing something as a church that we've never faced before. The challenge is so great. And no doubt it is. But, but here in Paul's letter to the Philippians, written sometime in the late 50s or 60 AD, he says to these group of believers, if you're going to be serious about mission, know that it's going to come with opposition. He says it's been granted to you in verse 29, not only to believe. I love that. What a gift, God, that I might believe in you. But God's other gift is that you would suffer for him. It's been granted to you not only to believe, but to suffer for him, for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw and now hear that I have. Just like people looked at Paul's imprisonment and rather than being turned away from the Lord, found courage and confidence to make Christ known, Paul says, you see the work I'm engaged in? Know that if you're going to be engaged in this work, that it's going to come with a cost. And that article that Piper shared, it, it just unnerved and rattled me. He said, we need to break out of deeply ingrained habits of timidity and silence and fear. We need to be set free from long established anxieties over ruffling feathers and offending secular pluralists and being slandered. We need to be free to speak truth and love without looking over our shoulder at the snickering or ridicule that follows. To be about God's mission means to be ready for opposition. But, but here's, here's what I've concluded as I look at Paul's words. Where do we get courage? You know, I think sometimes we, we think about where courage comes from. I, I jokingly uh, shared a, an update of shoveling my driveway last night. We just moved into a new place, and now I have to shovel my driveway because my landlord doesn't pay to do that anymore. Um, and so 
I heard that it was heart attack snow, which was really encouraging that if you shovel the snow, you might get a heart attack. So I was like, well, here we go. We'll test out the, the early 30s to see how good we're doing. Um, and uh, in, in, the, in the process of getting ready, I was like, I was looking at my, you know, driveway beautifully glistening with, you know, six inches of snow. And I was like, you got this, right? Like you kind of have to psych yourself up. If you're going to be out here for an hour plus doing this, you kind of got to get ready. You got to psych yourself up. And, and so I'm, you know, telling myself, you got this, you know, here we go. You know, so jump in. I think sometimes we think that courage is like that, where we just say, all right, you just got this. It doesn't matter what they say. You just got to say it. You just got to be faithful to Jesus. I'm not saying that you don't need to encourage yourself in that way sometimes. Like just open your mouth and trust God, right? Um, but here's where courage comes from. Courage doesn't come from psyching ourselves up to be faithful to God. But actually, courage comes from finding our delight in Jesus. Paul can say, do not be afraid because he's already concluded to live as Christ and to die as gain. What can any person who opposes the gospel take from you in Christ? What can they steal away from you that God has promised you? That God has given you through Jesus? Absolutely nothing. Even if they kill you, which I doubt is going to happen, right? But even if they did, and as some believers in the world today face all in all too real of a way, you have nothing to be afraid of. Take courage. Be bold, Paul is saying. To live as Christ, to die as gain. That's where real courage comes from. That's where we need to be focused as we enter a new year. Delighting in Christ so that we might live a life that declares and displays the goodness of the gospel.